Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkulop, and on this episode, we are going to cover all the big stories that have appeared during the first full week of May 2021 on thisiscommonsense.org. Thisiscommonsense.org is the site that Paul has been writing for since 1999. So, Paul, what's the big stories this week? Six trillion dollar man. You know, I, I think we showed our age this week. Your love of that title? Yes. And I should mention that you said, hey, do we really want this title? But I just felt like it's just, you know, I, I and I am not was never a watcher of the six million dollar man on television when I guess we were what in our late teens or early Yeah, teens? yeah, somewhere around then. I watched quite Very a few episodes. Show. It was it had uh Farrah Fawcett's husband in it, right? Lee Majors, Lee Majors, who is Heath on the Big Valley, is how I always saw him, you know, because that was played in the afternoon when I was a little kid. So anyway, uh, the six million dollar man has been replaced with a not a six billion dollar, but a six trillion dollar man being Mr. President Joe Biden. And um you know, we have we have uh, consistently, you know, you hear almost anytime anybody mentions anything about the fact that we're spending incredible sums of money that we don't have. We borrow that money so that we can send them. They've borrowed thousands of dollars so they could ship it into my bank account so that I could go on podcasts and complain about the ridiculousness of sending me money. That's they think that's worth funding. So uh, maybe they should send more, then I'll really go after them. But no, it's, it's, it, this has been the first, what, in the first hundred days he had already talked about, um, you know, spending $6 trillion. And it's all talked about as if this is, you know, why didn't anyone think of this before? that we could just spend all kinds of money and give everybody everything. And of course, there's an increasingly larger pool of people thinking, yeah, that sounds right. And now there's, you know, there's even the, the modern monetary theory, which is basically if you, you know, if a government prints it up, it's money. And uh, why should anyone be the wiser if uh, they print up a whole lot of it? Um, but, but I would, I took off on, on Monday on, Chuck Todd, one of my least favorite uh, talking heads on television, who did a big thing about the this is the return of big government. Uh, you know, you had you, he mentioned Reagan, who, you know, had said, you know, the government's not the solution. It's the problem. And uh, and and Clinton, of course, saying the era of big government is over, which, you know, you know when Clinton said it, he didn't mean it. But. But you did have some reform and some fiscal controls better than, you know, your average completely out of control Congress uh, and, and White House. And, of course, that was divided government then, which is one of the reasons. Now, the real reason that there were some some uh, years where the deficit wasn't as big in the 90s. I think the real reason is that we had a huge boom because of all kinds of technology and, and you know, just economic innovate, innovation and production that had almost zero to do with any policy coming out of Washington, if not zero. Um, but, uh, you know, now we had Obama come back and explain that government can do a lot of good things for us. We haven't seen any of them yet, but 
Yeah, and it can. It, you know, the, it, it, it strikes me that government can break things. If you need someone to go break things and take over uh, a, a society other than your own, government is pretty good at doing that. Um, we've shown that. And we've, we've shown it in a helpful way. I'm not being facetious completely. There are times to, to break things. And, and boy, when those times come, uh, the U.S. military has proven to break things better than almost anybody you can think of. Um, but this is, this is government doing all kinds of things like providing everybody all the basics of life, as if we just have a machine that, that does that. The only way for government to do that is to take those things from other people. And I know they're only going to take it from the rich people. Uh, my, my, uh, oldest who I saw today, my youngest graduated from college today. That's why I have a tie on. And, um, and which is wonderful. We don't pay any more money after this, uh, at least at universities. And, um, and, but anyway, I saw my oldest and I remember when she was little and we were first in, in DC and uh, I was working for term limits and Bill Clinton was president. And she told me that uh, we were talking about Bill Clinton and different things. And she said, well, but, but his tax increase, isn't that only going to be only rich people are going to have to pay that. And it gave me this wonderful opportunity to explain that, you know, rich people have rights to their stuff too. And, you know, oh yeah, I, I know, but, you know, and, and so got through all that explanation. And then the last thing I explained to her is, according to Bill Clinton, we're rich. <laughs> to which she knew that wasn't so. <laughs> that that kind of hurt a little bit. How quickly she knew that was complete bunk. Anyway, uh, um, but but government's going to do more now. And when you think about, you know, there's been so much talk about critical race theory, and and we haven't kind of addressed it head on to just the critical race theory itself, but all the different manifestations of we're going to give benefits to poor people in Oakland, California, but not white people who are poor. Come on. Um, you know, just different things like this that are insane. And, and yet that's, you know, we're, that's all part of this idea that we can rectify all racism, probably rectify all other isms. If we just kind of judge everybody and then you know maybe we need a tribunal that will just sit and judge everyone and and how privileged have they been how much do they really owe back to society how much were they hurt and underprivileged it reminds me of a, a piece i did a couple of years ago when they were talking about giving extra credit i think on the sat if you came from a divorced uh, ha household, a, br a broken household, or whatever the, the latest terminology is, if you didn't have both a mother and a father, you got extra points. And, and if you were in a poor neighborhood, maybe you weren't, if your zip code was poor, you got extra points, even if you were wealthy. But if you lived in a zip code that wasn't as wealthy as the next one, where somebody was maybe poor in a wealthier zip code, you got more points was all of this based on, and well, it's just, you know, as I'm reading this article, I'm thinking, so really the best thing I can do is to divorce my wife, 
abandon my family and push everybody into a really bad neighborhood so that she can then get accepted to the best possible college and then we'll come back and reconstitute the family and you know it's like it's you know incentives are so important and and it just seems like government never figures that out and this is i'm going on another tangent now because the other thing that came out this week that we didn't write about we're going to cover all the things we didn't write about there's only a few more on the list but one of the things that came out this week is the problem finding workers and I remember about a year ago when numerous people I knew who were working restaurant jobs and, and jobs that were not high pay, who had this dilemma about I'm getting 600 bucks a week on top of the state unemployment. I'm getting 600 from the feds. The last thing I want to do is go back to work and make 300 instead of the 600 for working instead of not working. And I can't tell you how many people I heard say that that, oh, come on, that has no effect. As if, as if, I mean, if, look, a lot of us like to work, but if someone will pay us more not to, I think we're, I think that person is going to have a really successful recruitment campaign to get us to stop working for more money. Um, it's just insane. All of this to say that government is not going to be in a position to do. It can't do so many things that we have asked government to do, like educate kids who, who aren't already coming into the school educated from, from their houses. Government's having a lot of trouble doing that. And, and look, it's understandable these aren't always, government a lot of times is doing things that aren't easy. Policing isn't always easy. Educating kids who, who are not, don't already have all the skill sets and stuff to, to be educated. These are not easy things. But if government can't accomplish them, why do we think that government can somehow have this crystal ball to determine everyone's exact need and what needs to be, you know, each according to his, uh, his need or, or well, what is that? Why well, can't I, I, it was on the tip of my tongue. What's the marks? Uh, well, the line is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Yes. And, and it's going to be changed in our modern, you know, marks, even though they're all Marxists, they're going to change it to say each according to their privileged illegitimate, you know, gains we're going to take because once they take, it's always because someone's, you know, someone really owed it. Um, and, and giving to people according to their need, but these aren't just whether they're rich or poor, but the grand scope of history, who deserves what, what nationality, what, what gender, what it's, uh, it's pretty insane. And the other part of that is that they're talking about doing it with trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And without any sense that, you know, there's any price to be paid. And in fact, one of the things that really struck me was that in explaining what Biden is doing, uh, Chuck Todd used the uh, terminology 
he said, uh, Mr. Biden is making a $6 trillion bet that promoting popular programs will be popular. Not a bad bet. Popular because they're given money. And then, and that he'll be rewarded for getting things done long before the actual bill comes to. And this is, you know, in, in the private sector, that's a con man. In government, that's Democrats and Republicans. And, and one of the things we point out in the script, of course, and, and that uh, Chuck Todd correctly pointed out, about the only thing he correctly pointed out, is that, of course, it's going to be a little easier for Biden to do it because Republicans spent like crazy people uh, with no fiscal discipline whatsoever. And so you've got one party that can't really hold the other party to account because they're complete, rotten, no good, hypocrite, big spending, uh, you know, big government people. And so it's hard for them to go, well, they, the Democrats are big spending, big government people. Well, they all are, everybody in Washington. And of course, what people also don't, I think a lot of times think about, because if they thought about it, I think it would occur to them, there is a tremendous advantage to spending more money. Why, why do people want to talk to a congressman? They want to talk to a congressman because that congressman has a vote on trillions of dollars being spent. And so if we go to Tuesday's piece, Term Limits Trek, where a, a guy who lost his music industry job in, in Nashville, Izzy Israel, and hooked up with Jeff Tillman, a buddy of mine, an uh, old colleague from U.S. term limits, and is walking from Florida to Washington State trying to get more attention for term limits because he looks at it and says, we've got to do something to reconnect government with common sense, with the people. And as long as they're there as careerists, they're going to be with the power in Washington. And the longer they're there, the more they realize whatever I say in my speeches about too much spending, every dollar I spend is one more dollar of power I have. If Washington cut its spending in half, all the members of Congress would be half as powerful. That's not only the way they look at it, I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of other people who look at it that way, especially the people who they're sending checks to. Um, <clears throat> so this, uh, this situation in Washington where they're going to spend, 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 and we're going to have a pandemic in which there's some excuse maybe that, they, oh, it's, it's so terrible. But then you see the spending and the spending is not aimed at the problem really seemed to be aimed at we wanted to goose the economy at a time in which people couldn't even find any stores open to buy anything. They, I guess they could shop at Amazon um, and send money to people who did not really need that money. That, that's not looking at the problem and trying to solve it. And um, it seems like they don't, you know, with, with even with that excuse, all the spending, the, the infrastructure bill, now, you know, infrastructure is <clears throat> an age-old thing of, hey, here's a bunch of people we can give jobs. We look good. Again, we're spending money. We're creating economic prosperity. That's the way they view it. It's ridiculous, but 
re really what they're doing is spending money. But at some point, of course, you do have to fix some roads and bridges and things. That should be a regular type thing. And you might have a downturn, a downturn in which money's cheaper. Money's been pretty cheap. It was cheaper. Truth is more argument to do this in 2009 or 10 when you had a downturn and you could borrow money at a cheaper rate. I think we're going to start to see. I mean, it's basically at, at certain levels free <laughs> to borrow money. <clears throat> but I think we're going to see that start to change. But there's some argument to do infrastructure spending. So the argument would be we need it. And now's a good time vis-a-vis -vis other times because money's cheap to borrow. Isn't the infrastructure spending just mainly roads? Isn't that what they're talking about? Are they talking about something else other than roads? Yes. And in fact, well, because they're talking about it could be airports. It could be, um, it could be Amtrak. That's which, is, which loses money every year right. and spectacularly so. Right. Right. So, so it's not just the roads, but here's the other thing. It's not just infrastructure. They're estimating, and I haven't heard anybody push back against this, that 30% of the infrastructure spending is infrastructure. Well, then, then it's not, you know, it's like, that's uh, not, what is the real bill? And, and again and again, we're seeing this, the, uh, well, we saw it with the, uh, you know, we've got to get some relief to people. They were saying that in November after the election, people are desperate for relief. It didn't come for months. And then most of it wasn't relief for people. It was all kinds of other things. This is, it's, it's a mess. And the reason I connect it with term limits, and there are, there's more that needs to be done than just term limits. We have to have a representative form of government. And since the people sitting in Congress don't represent us, we don't have it. That's a big, big problem. Term limits gets added, smaller districts, which we talked about numerous times. We need districts in which you know your congressmen or you might know them. Districts, I'm talking about districts that are 50,000 people, not 750,000 people. That's a lot bigger Congress, but it means that when big money comes to smear somebody or to put their guy in or whatever, and, and it's not, you know, they don't wear a hat that says big money and so on. But it means you, you watch who would oppose. Big, big, big business would oppose. Big labor would oppose. Everybody with a stake right now in power would oppose it. And the reason they would oppose it is it would reduce their individual politician power, their personal power, because there'd be so many more people who had some of that power. But more than anything, it would stop the special interest because they can't get in the way. In my district, I don't, I've never met the congressman in my district. If somebody runs an ad against him or runs an ad about somebody else, you don't know these people, where's the fact checker? I look at a state like New Hampshire where in their state house, they have 400 members. The average district is 3000 people. You gonna run a big, nasty ad campaign against somebody in a district of 3,000 people? I don't think so, because they know each other. You can't get away with saying a bunch of ridiculous hogwash. So that's a, a fundamentally different way to go at it. We have to do all of those things. We got to make big reforms and we have to make them 
at the state and local level where it impacts Washington because they see that the ground is moving from under their feet, but we also need it in Washington and we need to start pushing it because all this talk, this HR1, Senate 1, this bill where the Democrats want to play with the electoral system, which they're accusing the Republicans of wanting to play with in the states. And I guarantee you this, the Democrats are not going to propose any reforms that will help the Republicans. And the Republicans are not going to propose any reforms that will help the Democrats. And it's why basically we should be involved as people and not be allowing Congress or the state legislatures to do it all by themselves. It's why we need the initiative process and we need it at all levels of government. So there's that check from us, not just from the other party, because I think we've all kind of recognized the check from the other party. This is like the bad checking the bad. This is the the fox guarding the uh, fox house and having a bunch of hens inside. Um, Anyway. That but that didn't quite work, but you you know it was a good try. It was a good try. <laughs> um, Izzy Israel uh, went on the road just to publicize term limits, uh, but that's not what we expect most people to be doing. Most people probably should be working on initiatives and uh, and some other mechanism to get some decent reforms. People, yes. can lo- people can lobby their state houses too for things like uh, you didn't you mention this week uh, somewhere about uh, constitutional conventions? Yes, it was in in this piece. Uh, basically, you can you know Congress could pass a constitutional amendment. They're not likely to do it until they have no other possible choice, no other alternative, and then they'd probably want to pass one that was weak. Um, you can get a constitutional amendment by the states calling for a convention, a term limits convention that would then propose the amendment and they would figure out what the term should be and how it should be written and all that kind of thing. U.S. term limits, which I'm still on the board of, worked for uh, for many years. We favor three terms in the House, six years total, two terms in the Senate, 12 years. Um, and, and usually people say, why so long in the Senate? But two terms. Um, but of course, politicians, some of them have talked about, yeah, I'm for term limits, 18 years. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, so it is important that it be done with citizens driving it. And U.S. term limits is going state by state. They've already picked up four states. Let me see if I can remember. Uh, Missouri has passed uh, a call for a term limits convention. So is Florida, Alabama. And what is the other one? Oh, well, we'll just grab the piece. That'll tell us. Alabama, Florida, Missouri, and West Virginia. Is that the West one you're Virginia. talking about? Yes. And there are 15 other states that have passed calls. This is with the Convention of States effort, where term limits has been one of two or three issues that they've said, we want to call the convention. Now, states have this right under Article 5. It's the best best path to get to a a constitutional amendment. I think uh, you will see Congress probably try to pass something weaker, but there's already, you know, all the support for term limits in the Congress is people supporting shorter limits because that's where the people are. Anyway, that's, that's inside baseball down the road a little bit, helping U.S. term limits push. And these pushes are in state legislatures. These are people where you're not even asking them to term limit themselves. They're either term limited by uh, a law already or they're not. You're asking them 
to call for this convention to decide a term limit for Congress. It's probably the most unifying issue across all demographic groups, wildly popular. And, but U.S. term limits needs the help. They, you know, they can show polls that show tremendous support, but politicians tend to think, well, but how much will those people really know when it comes time to vote next time? And that's why it doesn't hurt for you to say, you know what? State Senator Jones, Representative uh, Smith, I want you to vote for this or I can't vote for you. Um, or just, I want you to vote for this. You don't have to immediately go to, or I'm going to bring the hammer down. But so there's all kinds of things that can be done. This is not likely to be something that just sweeps through legislatures because there's tremendous natural resistance. These are wannabe career politicians in most of the state legislatures, and they just don't like the idea of being limited. So this is no easy task, and it's something that people can do that would make a real difference. And I'm assuming the parties themselves, including the Republican Party, are really filled with people who are putting pressure on legislatures not to, to go this direction. I assume that term limits is, you know, even if, a, even if a party like the Republican Party says we're for term limits, if that, were, if that were in the national platform, does that mean that that's what they're saying behind the doors to their, their party members in, in the houses, state houses? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, but but it's interesting you say that because I, I thought that's where you were going to go. It reminds me of uh, my old, the, the late Bob Novak, one of my favorite columnists, one of my favorite guys in, in D.C. Um, and I used to get to go have breakfast with him from time to time, kind of give him the latest on term limits and and talk about stuff. It was uh, what a joy. Uh, anyway, so good memories there. He used to say. Republicans in Washington support term limits, Democrats oppose it. Republicans are lying. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. just as simple as that. And, and there were some good people uh, that came in, Tom Coburn, uh, Mark Sanford, Matt Salmon, a number of people who came in well, sure. uh, and, and said they were going to limit themselves. You know, some of these guys, they didn't want to, they didn't want to put roots down in Washington. They, they were literally sleeping three nights a week in their office in, in, on, on Capitol Hill and then flying home to, you know, where they live. But, um, but there is, you know, there is a tremendous amount of opposition to term limits among office holders and when it comes to the parties, if you're talking about the Washington, D.C. party hacks, yes, a lot of opposition, I think, to term limits. If you're talking about the rank and file of the party, of course, absolutely off the charts support for term limits. That's true of all the parties, but especially Republicans, even a little higher. But who controls the party? And I think that we think about historically the backroom party guys and so on. But that's not who controls the parties anymore. The parties are clubs. They're incumbency clubs. And they're controlled by the politicians themselves. When Abraham Lincoln came to Washington as a congressman, he was elected in an Illinois district where the party had a policy of rotation in office. You serve a term and then you give somebody else a chance to go serve a term. And after his first, toward the end of his first term, he told the party people, hey, I'm really starting to learn the ropes here. I think I can be very effective. 
you know, if I can stay another term and they decided, no, we're going to, we're going to stick with our rotation. But, you know, there was a time in which the power in the party was not the office holder, at least theirs alone. Today, I think it is 99% the office holders. And, you know, I, I say that in part because I know when, when Republicans controlled the Congress uh, before 2006 and Democrats took it back, the, the most vicious things said about that Congress were said by Republicans. Republicans hated that Congress. It was a Republican Congress. And then Democrats take over. And after a couple of years, I hear my Democratic friends saying the meanest things about the Congress. So this is not a, I hate Congress because the other party controls it. This is a very bipartisan, just disgust with Congress. And it's their own congressmen that they don't quite trust. It's their own party they don't trust. It's not always their own congressmen, they might or might not, but they don't. If, if you ask Republicans in Nebraska and California and Michigan, what do you think of the Republicans in Congress? You're going to hear a lot of nasty things. So, so you know, that's we, we have a situation in which when they talk about party bosses, I think that and the media does from time to time, they're 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 in essence kind of throwing us off because those party bosses are the politicians themselves for the most part. Not that they don't have people around them, not that they don't have cronies, but this is not some separate force from what I call the incumbency. These are incumbent members of Congress, they're cronies, they're people. And, um, and, and so it's in terms of the parties having any real impact, I think it's gotta be the, the people who have impact and, and increasingly, I know so many people who I would say that is a absolutely blue blood Republican only to find out that that person who goes to Republican events doesn't call themselves a Republican anymore, calls themselves a conservative because they're afraid otherwise people would misunderstand what their views are. And you see the same thing with, with Democrats, you know, calling themselves progressives and not just that I'm a, I'm a Democrat because the, the, among Democrats, the term progressive is better than Democrat. Among Republicans, the term conservative is a better term than a more popular term than Republican. Yeah, that's important to remember. Um, we had it uh, a few weeks ago. We had the great example of that on the Democratic side with Sarah Silverman when she was talking about the Democratic Party. And then she made her case entirely in terms of we're the progressive party. I think she even said something like it's in the name and it wasn't in the name. It's not. She completely blanked out that she's talking about Democrats when she only is interested in progressives. And that's very similar, I think, to, as you were saying, to many Republicans, since there are only conservatives and they're just stuck with the Republicans. You said something about um, Lincoln, and I'd forgotten this completely, and it meant, I think it's worth calling attention to, is that Lincoln had only one term as a representative in the House of Representatives. Yes, 1847, 1849, I think it was. And uh, that's, uh, I'd forgotten that completely. I, I, I just assumed he was a two-term representative. You know? The rotation in an average year uh, was right around half of the Congress for the 1800s, for the 19th century. 
And it really wasn't until, you know, we became a much more industrialized country and, and playing in a world, you know, uh, foreign policy sphere and so on that you saw, uh, and really post-World War II, that you saw the sort of 90-something percent re-election rate, again, 90-something percent again. And in the old days, there was, I think there was less incumbency, so the, the re-election rate was less. But the big difference was the voluntary quit rate, the rate at which people said, okay, I've done my part. I'm not going to Washington for 20 or 30 or 40 years. I've got other things to do. And, and so the attitude uh, was different. The attitude about how long you should stay was different and the desire was different. And I think part of that is we have made serving in public office a, a heck of a good job. Almost, you know, a roll call used to, and I no longer subscribe, I haven't for 20 years, but for, for years they did a survey of every incoming freshman congressional class and, you know, what, what they do before and their income and different things. And the vast majority were making more in Congress than they had made previously. It's a better job than they left. And, and I think if, if uh, I remember Tom McMillan, who played uh, uh, basketball, was a Maryland uh, congressman and had played in college in a professional career as a, a basketball star, very, very popular, uh, you know, uh, all-star type basketball player. And, um, and he told me, you know, folks around here, he said, I can't imagine staying very long. It's just not that much fun. And, and he said, but most of the people here, this is the best job they've ever had. It's been the most, it's the, the job where they've gotten the most pats on the back and the, everybody wants to hear. And he said, coming from professional sports, it's like, okay, so people might want to interview you now. <laughs> well, professional sports, most of the time, they're not trying to like cut your legs out from under you. He, he just made the point that being in Congress was not a better job than that. And that he didn't, you know, he didn't need the job either because he had had a career where he was financially secure and so on. And uh, there are, there are a lot of, I mean, the stories I've heard of congressmen talking about how important it is for them to win their second reelection so that they'll serve at least six years because after five years, they're vested in the congressional pension, which is a, is a nice pension. Um, and now they've, you know, some of them had their own congressional pension. Now they have the federal pension, but it's a great pension. And it's, and of course they're at a high salary level. So it's a wonderful retirement system. And, and it just seems to me, does that serve us? Do we get a better congressman because we're giving them those benefits? I don't think so. I think we'd get good people anyway, and maybe better if they were the type of people who weren't so interested in the retirement benefits. And I think we'd be better off to have congressmen who didn't have the federal pension, where their thoughts are with the federal workforce, and instead were in Social Security or their thoughts were more in the rest of us and what our retirement system is. Cause you know, if you work for the federal government, you're, you're in 
uh, you know, you're employed by someone who has, if not the best retirement, awfully close to the best retirement system anywhere. So it's, it's, you know, these, these types of things matter. And I used to kind of think when people who would say something about, you know, pay raise and so on, you know, the manner they did it was usually, you know, dishonest and obnoxious, but I always thought, you know, why begrudge them the pay? You know, it, it was somehow envious or something. But, uh, you know, the more I've seen legislatures work and Congress work, the more we, we cannot make it a lucrative profession or we're going to get a bunch of sharks who want to have a lucrative profession in politics. I think we want to make it something that someone sees it as giving back. And when I say giving back, I mean taking out of your pocket and giving back. Yeah, um, I think one of the bigger mistakes that was made by the founding convention uh, in Philadelphia was to reject the idea that the states would pay for the delegations to the U.S. Congress. Uh, That was considered, and they gave an argument, and it was about equality, and frankly, the argument seems so absurd to me, I can't even repeat it. It's just, it it won't stick in my head. I think think it's pretty obvious that it would have been much better had the separate the several states uh supported their own delegations and that would be voted by their that would be voted by their the the state legislatures and signed by their governor and it was nobody else's business i suspect the reason they didn't want to do that is that they feared that if if you had people who voted a different way in other words that the states would have more control than than the feds wanted them to have over their over their federal representatives. And I wouldn't mind the states having more control at all if that control was properly in the hands of the people as opposed to the state legislatures. Um, but ultimately at, at some point we have to we have to be able to throw people out who aren't good and put in good people and be aware of what's going on and set rules and, and so on. I mean, all these problems, um, you know, there's no other solution than us. So, and it's a lot of times people talk, well, it's our fault. You know, we did, we, well, we elected these people. We did, you know, all this different thing. It's the people's fault. I don't buy that. I don't think it's our fault that people lie to us and then get in office and steal from us. But I do think there's no use complaining to other people to get them to fix it because no one's going to fix it but us. So, yeah, a little subtle difference there. Right. There are times that I blame the people, but I'm not sure I'm consistent on the, on the regard. When the people yes, go on been... nonsense for year after year after year, I, I think, man, it's, it's your fault. It's well, and of course, anytime, anytime you're talking about, you know, three people or 330 million you probably have some you can blame and some you can't. Uh, so, well, certainly, I don't blame myself for anything that the government does because I don't support almost anything the government does. So I'm exempt. But though I'm talking about other people. <laughs> I now I do blame myself. I made three mistakes last decade, and I'm I have to kind of hold myself accountable for that. Of course, one of them was I thought I made a mistake and I hadn't. So, but I mean, it still counts as a mistake. I'm not sure we're talking about votes here anymore, but that's okay. Uh, speaking of three mistakes, uh, we've covered two pieces from this week. 
and there's three pieces left to go. <laughs> That's right. So our third mistake this week, I don't know, our third commentary. Uh, let's talk about body cams versus phone cam, because then we get to then we get to the last two, which are social media. Yeah, right. We had a, an incident, not this week, but last week, actually, that uh, that people I'm sure have heard about. And we covered it with a little different angle, a little different perspective. The incident was the woman, uh, and it was in uh, L.A. County. A uh, woman gets pulled over by an L.A. County deputy. The, the, apparently, the county, they're not requiring them to wear uh, body cameras. Um, but he had a body camera on his own to protect himself. And he pulls a woman over, and you may have seen the video, but if you haven't, basically, she starts right out with, you're a murderer. You're, I mean, she's just very, very rude. And she goes from, you're a murderer. And, and it's a, somewhat amazing. I guess maybe if you have, to have the, the video rolling, you figure, I'm, I'm going to try to be nice. Somewhat amazing how polite and nice the policeman was. You know, he just didn't get ruffled. Even his, his tone didn't really change much. And, and so then she gets into this, you know, well, I have a right to, you know, record you on my phone. And he points out, yes, you do. But you don't have a right to use your phone while you're driving. That's what you're getting a ticket for. And she then escalates to, apparently he's Mexican, that's his ethnicity, and makes a big deal about, uh, oh, you, you know, you're not white, you know that, as if somehow his big desire in life is to be white and, uh, and just, just rude, racist comments and and not to assume but of course she's assumed that he wanted you know wants to be white and that because because he's latino and a cop somehow all cops are white even though that's not exactly the case but she also you know you get the sense that it's this anti-racism that it's okay for her to talk this way, which is just vicious and mean. If it had nothing to do with race, it would be mean and vicious and not how you'd want anyone to behave. But then she uses race. And, and so we could talk about race for a while, but let's talk about how important it is that this was on film and how so much of what we're learning about policing is because it's on film. It's on the body cam that we have continued to argue has to be released to the public. There has to be a process to release these videos to the public and people can always go to court to stop it because of some earth shattering reason. But the default is the public gets to see what public officials are doing and even when what they did is terrible, it will, I'm convinced, depress violent responses when people know we're going to find out the truth. And when we find out the truth again and again, there's going to be more accountability. And the more accountability, the less it's going to happen. 
And the less people are going to feel like I have to do something I wouldn't necessarily do to change things. So these body cams are so important, but that's not the end of the story. All of us have, you know, not all of us, somewhere there's somebody who doesn't have a phone going, what the, what's everybody talking about? But everybody but that one person has a phone and has a camera. And then my kids are always giving me a hard time. I take like 50,000 pictures. And I go, why do you take so many pictures? I'm going, they're free. They're free. I can take them all day long. Of course, then then I don't have any memory or, or any, uh, any uh, what, storage space in, in iCloud, but you can't win them all. So, so there is actually a tiny cost associated with taking all those pictures. Bottom line is, as we point out in this commentary, uh, body cams versus phone cam, use your phone, take pictures, be part of the solution, and just don't do it when you're driving. That's the key. And sometimes it's better if the police don't know you're, you're filming. So, you know, years ago in Russia, and I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't hang out in Russia much, so I don't know. I haven't seen follow-up stories, but they used to have almost everybody had a video cam on their dashboard taking pictures so that when they went to court, they would have evidence against other crazy drivers and what they had done. And, you know, we need, we need more and more people protecting the public as private citizens, you can do a lot with your phone and, and we encourage it. And in this case, that private citizen was, was not uh, working as a private citizen at that time, uh, was a policeman, but it, it was helpful in this case in, in California. Right. And the truly private citizen was a complete whack job. Yes, that's true. The interesting thing about that too, is that the woman in that video filed a complaint against the officer for his mistreatment of her. And so it just, again, the more information doesn't mean that if a, a policeman has a bunch of complaints that, oh, they were all made up. But just like with anything else, we have to verify the fact that someone made a complaint doesn't mean that the person they complained about is guilty. And here is a case in which obviously, and this woman had made many complaints in the past, Kind of wonder if any of those were accurate, but in this case, it was complete hogwash. Okay. Um, the two pieces that remain uh, are both about uh, the internet, in a sense. They're both about social media, actually. Yes. Reddit redacts the internet was the one we did first. I, I guess we did that on Tuesday. And I think it's an important case, uh, important thing to, for just people to know about. This is Judicial Watch. They, uh, they do a lot of good work. Uh, they're seen as much more conservative Republican. But I remember uh, Larry Clayman leading Judicial Watch, and now it's Tom Fitton, who I know. And, and they have been more than willing to go after Republican administrations and Republican office holders when they see wrongdoing and demand accountability. And I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they're more apt to see the Democratic target and go after them, but they've been certainly have gone after people on both sides of the aisle. And here, what they did was to go after an effort in California where the government uh, of California was getting these reports 
from uh, a Biden vendor, a vendor with the Biden uh, campaign, uh, alleging all this, all this, uh, you know, bad behavior on the part of of different, um, uh, you know, people posting on Twitter and Facebook and so on. What you wrote here is, in at least a couple dozen cases, social media companies complied with government requests to delete posts containing misinformation, the new code word for stuff that I don't want people to see or discuss. The issue is the state of California getting reports about people posting stuff online that was not accurate or was misleading and going to social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, and saying this is misinformation and should be taken down. And then those social media outfits taking down some of those posts, most of those posts, and dozens of cases that that, uh, Judicial Watch found. That is censorship. That is government putting its thumb on the scale. And of course, oftentimes we will use the term censorship when Facebook comes in and blocks something. They've censored it. And of course, technically, censor means someone who is involved in government. So you could argue, well, you shouldn't say censor. They blocked it. They did this or that, but it's not censor. In this case, when it is coming from the government asking them to remove these posts, it is censorship. It may be private people exercising this censorship, but it's a heck of a problem. And of course, as we point out and have pointed out repeatedly, it's not as if even if all of this happened without government ever communicating in specific instances, government Congress is pulling these people before Congress on a regular basis and talking about changing the laws about how they can conduct their business if they can't control different speech on their platforms. Well, that's not the government's role. And when those entities, whether it be Facebook or Twitter or anybody else, go out and, and censor or block certain speech, Well, is that not because they were threatened, intimidated, uh, certainly made to consider what harm could befall them from government officials if they didn't censor speech? So this is very, very serious stuff. And I think, you know, I know a lot of good people who, hey, this is these are private companies. They can do whatever they want. I think they are not looking at the big picture here. There is a ton of government involvement in this. And, and the truth is, if there were zero government involvement, it is still okay. These companies, if there was zero government involvement, no intimidation, no money changing hands, as we talked about on, on Friday, and we'll get to that in the next script, threat, no threat, at thisiscommonsense.org. Um, if there was no pressure, no money contracts with the government, none of that. And these social media companies had as much reach as they do. And they were stopping people from posting who, because they posted this or posted that, and clamping down on the robust nature of our speech. It would be okay for you and I to talk about it. 
and to not like it and to think about how we might within a free society, whether we live in one or not, um, but, but no, as, as free people, how would we stop them? Well, if we find that they've done something against the law and, and we should, you know, well, we should mention what, what Reddit did here and then we'll jump to the, to the next one because that really deals with, with these issues a little bit more. But it's the other part of uh, Reddit redacts the internet is the fact that it's not always the government being involved. <clears throat> in the case of Reddit, they are blocking links that are put in uh, to BitChute, to Rumble, to different non-YouTube uh, uh, companies out there. And there doesn't seem to be a problem with these specific links. It's a problem with any link going back to those companies. Now, um, why you want to, as I said, China wall, you know, off these, these companies, we have every reason to be concerned about that as consumers. And we don't know exactly why Reddit is doing it. Uh, maybe it's a, a deal with YouTube. Maybe it's just their own view that they don't like these other companies. But again, in this whole in, in our world, we have every right to be concerned about why people are doing things, even private people, even private companies. They can tell us to go take a, a hike, but we have a right to confront them and we have a right to talk about it and we have a right to look for ways to get around that and to have the kind of robust debate that's going to help us find answers to problems, whether it's medicine or politics or anything else. Yeah, my main beef with these companies, they haven't censored me very much, probably because I use bigger words than most people. And that just, that's not going <laughs> to, that's, that's my theory is the big word theory. Uh, and I, you know, I reference, you know, Socrates as much as I reference anything else in the world or, you know, just, just, it's, a, a, I sort of have a different presence, but I'm very nasty sometimes on Facebook. I'm very nasty right now to Democrats. I've ever has, ever, ever since Hillary was dominated, I've been, exoriating Democrats for going for giving up on everything that they good about what their party was, because I consider Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden to be just the nadir of politics, uh, just the worst people on the planet almost. And uh, so I make that very clear, but I have not been taken down by Facebook and so forth. Lots of my other friends have usually for gross things and for, for jokes, but uh what annoys me about the partisanship here is not merely that it's partisan, but that it, these companies, and you mentioned this in their Friday piece, the threat, no threat piece, Twitter and Facebook were just, you know, reveling in how they're allowing people to talk about politics and, and activism in new ways. Right. Twitter was just praising itself that we're allowing for this revolution of ideas. Well, then the revolution happened in America and it didn't happen to, in favor of their party. So they were easily moved by politicians who were all Democrats. They were the Democrats were mainly the ones arguing that they should crack down on speech, right? There was so much hope, I think, about the communication ability and, <clears throat> and kind of a, a naivety about how powerful governments could clamp down on it. I mean, in, in the last year, what was it? In, in uh, Kashmir, I think, in, in India, you know, the internet, internet was down for like two months, three months or something, uh, you know, we have, or, or I should say, 
powerful governments have the ability to clamp down on our communication in ways they haven't in in the past, in the in the recent past. And and you know, we have, I think, been slow to figure out what we're gonna do, partly because it was all given to us in essence as this wonderful new way to communicate and uh, and to communicate to have revolution a lot of the, the a lot of the world needs revolutions and and anywhere that doesn't need a revolution needs a whole lot of reform and that needs communication and and so our friday piece uh, we talked about uh, a Reason Magazine article, Robbie Sav. Is that how you pronounce his last name? I understand it's Robbie Suave. Suave, okay. Boy, I wasn't even close. Um, but, and he makes a point that you just can't argue with. He's right that, you know, Facebook, he says, quote, Facebook can't kill, jail, or tax you. It can only stop you from posting on Facebook. But, Posting on Facebook is important. It's a way that people can communicate with their neighbor and protect themselves from governments that can kill, jail, and tax you. Um, so you know it. it and and it, it seems to me that never when when people are saying this, there's no realization for where these businesses are in terms of what we talked about before with the intimidation from, from politicians, from legal control, whether the section 230 or whatever it is gets changed this way or that way, you know, that's a threat. And it means that they have every reason to want to act in a way that their threateners won't, won't follow through. Um, and, and the truth is they've been threatened from both the right and the left on that. Um, but, I, I kind of say, look, what are, what are you doing? I mean, part of why they have that one part in the law is because they're supposed to have these platforms that they're not controlling the content of. Well, they obviously are controlling the content of if they're blocking people's content. So it doesn't seem to fit with, with the way that law works. And I don't claim to be an expert on all the ins and outs of communication law. Somehow I think that the First Amendment could just cover all of our communications law, but anyway. Uh, but they also, there's never any mention of the fact that Facebook, Google, these companies are doing billions of dollars worth of business with the federal government. And if you had some major player in a political thing, you know, it's not so unusual that you point out, well, here's where their bread is buttered. You know, here's where they get money. Of course, I, as I've gotten older, I realize in the media, like any initiative I'm going to have anything to do with it, it's going to be who funds this. But so often when the left does initiatives, there's no question about funding because the reporters covering it support it. The newspapers support it. And the level of when, when people talk about systemic racism, you could talk about systemic progressivism in media in the sense that they don't seem to recognize that it's not exactly a fair media situation in which ballot measures you don't like, you go into their funding and try to look for anything bad you can find, but ballot measures that you do like, you never mention their funding. Or where it comes from. 
this one ballot measure you don't like, oh, they're getting 62% of their funding from out of state, but never any investigation of the one you like that's getting 97% of its funding from out of state. Not that there's anything wrong with getting funding from out of state, because oftentimes I'm involved with groups who are national funding our efforts in different states. It's the fact that it's it's all going one way. And, and it's interesting because you would think they're into this. Well, who's, you know, who really controls things, but they don't tend to be unless it fits their narrative. And what I'm pointing out here is why is there never any mention of the billions of dollars of business that these companies are doing with the government? And, and again, maybe there's nothing that can be done about it. Maybe that's, that's their right to do business and everything but we as customers ought to know it. And since our media is not telling us enough about it, at Common Sense, we're going to be talking about it. And we're gonna be looking for ways to get more competition in social media. I mean, that's something we've talked about a lot and it's tough, I know, because I've done some different things at MeWe and that I, I signed up for Parler. I never really got, did anything. I mean, I'm a busy guy. There's only so much I can do. And we don't want to abandon the all the all the uh, communications devices that are going on that are determining, you know, people's opinions and, and political happenings, because that's unilateral disarmament in a sense. But we have to find ways to to get our message out and to combat uh, these powerful forces, private forces that are connected up with government in all kinds of different ways, but whether they are or not, are a negative force on our society. And we have every right to talk about it, to keep raising it, to keep educating people that, you know, Facebook is not just, you know, doing their their thing in terms of what you see when you go on Facebook. They have all kinds of other things they do. Google is not just a search engine. It's doing all kinds of business with the federal government and with parts of the federal government like the CIA and the NSA and the FBI. And so these companies, I just think are a lot more dangerous than than a lot of libertarians. uh, Because I think a lot of times, and even when it's not libertarians saying it, they're saying it from that libertarian perspective that, hey, even if we don't like what they're doing, they have every right to do it. Agreed. They have every right to do it. Let's find out exactly what they're doing. And if they're doing it with our tax dollars, let's stop them. And if they're doing it with their own money, let's find a way to compete and diminish their control of the marketplace because they are a hindrance to knowledge and information. And that can't stand. We need this information. You know, free speech isn't just, oh, we like that. That's a nice, uh, you know, it's kind of a nice right to have. Every once in a while, I might want to say something. Free speech is essential to holding government accountable. It's essential to economic progress, science, progress in science and medicine and everything else. And so uh, we're, we're going to continue to talk about these things. And, and push back, not just against uh, folks on the left uh, or folks on the right when they, you know, think that 
somehow their control of speech ought to be okay. But even against libertarians who are, who are kind of having this laissez-faire attitude as if we as consumers don't have a right to push back and as if there isn't anything fishy here that we as citizens ought to be asking more questions about. Well, I agree with that. I do think there might be something fishy to, about organizations, just as private organizations, that get us on board on one pretext and then change the pretext. I got heavily into Facebook because Facebook seemed to be very free speech oriented. And I can say anything I want there. And now I find out it's not. So I feel I feel betrayed. Right, really, that's 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 actually my main complaint about Twitter, really, especially is is just betrayal. Uh, and which is one reason I spend more time on Gab and Float than I do on Facebook these days. They've sowed the, sown the seeds of their own demise, I think, I hope. Um, but, but you're right. And that's another thing that it, there is a, a fraudulent aspect of this to encourage people and, and seem to have this, oh, well, we have certain policies. And then it turns out that they don't seem to follow any of their own policies. Right. Well, when you're when you are involved in a business like they are involved in and you are telling people you have certain policies and your words cause them to give you all kinds of information, put photos and other information that you can then mine and sell. And then it turns out that, oh, no, you're not following your policies. That is fraud. And well, they made a mistake. Well, they made a mistake. They're making billions of dollars. And so you don't get to go around and defraud people. And maybe we need a class action lawsuit against Facebook. Um, I'm surprised that there hasn't been one. Maybe there has been one. Lawsuit. Well, I, I believe we've covered this before. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just written about it on my blog. But I believe the terms of service of most of these organizations preclude class action lawsuits. Uh, and uh, and that's actually received pushback by a judge overruling that term in, in one California case uh, or the, or Owen Benjamin's what, case. I remember you telling me about I don't know. I don't think we've done anything on it. Um, okay. And yeah. you may have done something on it because I, I do remember you telling me about that case, that there was some uh, some judge that said, oh, you're, because so often on the internet, you know, there's these long legal documents that nobody's reading and, and, you know, and you could never show that they even saw the whole thing. And, you know, unless they have six zillion trillion screenshots of everybody's computer, which of course they couldn't get that whole area of law, it seems to me to be really, really dicey. And people do have to be responsible for agreements they make. But I, I think there's going to be some, some pushback in that whole area. You know, YouTube gained its preeminence in video delivery services well over Vimeo, which was an early adopter of that kind of technology too, uh, largely because it was so helpful to independent content producers like you would be here, except right. that we're not right. well known, but there are people who've, who've built whole careers off of their right. YouTube presences. And now YouTube is diminishing their reach because YouTube has a new policy. They want to get Fox and, uh, 
and NBC and, and they want to get as much of major network and major company uh, influence on their on their website. And so they're switching gears and they're have many policies that are betraying their initial clientele that made them popular. And it's quite harrowing to see that uh, shift. Uh, many, many of these people like uh, Six Hexenhammer, who's somebody I actually follow on YouTube, but he now does more on BitChute and other platforms simply because YouTube is, as he puts it, screwing them over. Yeah, no, I, a lot of the uh, podcasts, or not podcasts, uh, but uh, video casts that I, I watch on YouTube complain about, uh, in fact, uh, uh, most of them are, are about China and, and Southeast Asian policy and the South China no, Sea. And, oh and, and boy, uh, a couple of them talk about any time we say anything about, uh, you know, millions of Uyghurs in concentration camps, all of a sudden, you know, we have our, our video demonetized and, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of different things going on there. And, and it does seem, you know, for the head of YouTube, I think this is maybe the stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say. And that's, that's, a, that's something. The CEO of YouTube saying that they were going to take anything down that disagreed with the World Health Organization guidelines or whatever. I mean, it's, it's just insane. And, and when, when you think about that, how do big, terrible, horrible things happen? It's when there's nobody to push back against the folks on high. And I mean, it, it, it would be insane to suggest that anybody who said anything that disagreed with the CDC should be taken down. But the World Health Organization—that's a whole nother, a whole nother. Uh, oh man! Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'm very interested in uh, dissident scientists to the COVID business because I, after being lied to for a year, I just don't really believe anything the CDC tells me. I have to, I have to double check it and see what makes sense, and I don't trust any of the vaccines. I really like the fact that there was at least uh, Geert van den Bosch, who was this uh, controversial Dutch uh, virologist. He uh, he was on the uh, Dark Horse podcast this last week, I think it was, which is on YouTube. And uh, it was really great to see that because I don't know how long that's going to be up. Because yeah. the, he's the kind of, that's the kind of thing they don't want anyone to talk about is Geert van den Bosch believes that... Uh, the last thing you want to do in a uh, contagion like this is inoculate people with something that diminishes their symptoms. Uh, he thinks it's really bad. It's, there's, he thinks it's going to be immune escape and make super viruses. So I'm very interested in that position because it was one of my fears going in. I don't know if it's true. Um, I, don't, I don't believe anything about this, but I'm very curious about it. And it's still available on YouTube, but I don't think that will be available for long if things go the way they seem to be going. Yep. I think about the election uh, and the, uh, and the New York post story. I mean, that's just, it's to think that a major event like that, that turns out to be verified was just poo pooed by major media operation after operation, uh, including the government media, national public radio, um, and it's, it, you know, 
we'll see this more and more. It, it, you become a society in which people are used to be told, being told lies. They know there's not going to be an open disagreement. And it creates a situation in which people do not know what to believe. And they start looking for something that makes more sense than the lies they're being told. And so it is, it's creating an environment in which conspiracy theories thrive. Because in essence, I think it helps. It helps if people, if, if, if people run off in a zillion different directions because they don't have any, any real basis to, to believe they know anything about it, um, you know, it, it changes the way things are debated. And, and it also, I think, allows for a lot of, you know, everything's debunked. You know, before, you know, we were told there was nothing to the Biden stuff in Ukraine before anybody had investigated anything. And, and of course, you, you know, you can't prove a negative. You can't go, oh, well, we know nothing happened because we did an investigation. You can only say we didn't find anything. So, but the whole way that story was treated would be the way you would expect it to be treated if the media companies were part of the Democratic Party. Like if, if, if you come to me and say, I wanna run a story about what a bad person Paul Jacob is, you know, I might, I might kind of spin that a little differently. <laughs> and that's kind of what, what we have. I mean, it, it became a joke at one point. I don't know if it was uh, the late Rush Limbaugh or who first, you know, said the, uh, uh, well, the Democrats said this and the media said this, oh, but I repeat myself because the media is, is so in the tank for the Democratic Party and um, so to the left of the Democratic Party. Um, but it, it just has become so obviously true. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, and I don't know how you get that back. I don't, I think we end, we end up having to get to a different place where there's different media operations and maybe different ways to get media. Who knows what, what the next uh, jump is. But it's, it's, I think back to the post office, which years and decades ago, you know, there was this thought that, that at some point they might pro privatize the post office so that it would run more efficiently and so on. And no, but of course that whole part of our society runs much more efficiently now. The post office just became no longer important. It wasn't, it was no longer a bottleneck because we just leapfrogged right over it with FedEx and different things and then email. And now, now there's a whole different, you know, there's no, the email doesn't have to go to the post office first to be lost and then sent on. And so it's, and I think we may see the same thing with media that it's, it's uh, you know, there's a tendency not to go back to the way things used to be. I think we're going to see, and we've seen tremendous changes. Hopefully we'll see some more. Well, on that note, we could conclude an episode of This Week at Common Sense. Yes, we should, if not having concluded it 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Very good.